The reading this morning is from Exodus chapter 3. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain." Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. The word of the Lord. This summer here we're doing a sermon series called Public Faith, Sharing the Hope That Is Within, and it's inspired by a series that was done at Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City a few years ago, and looking at how do we do public faith well. And I honestly think that since Tim Keller first developed this series, so it's 2013, um, this task has only gotten harder. The public discourse has grown more toxic. The battle lines have become more sharply drawn. The stakes are seen as being more apocalyptic than ever before. But one of the great insights that Keller offers up, and I think it, it, it holds truer now than even it did then, is that one of the best things that you can do to model doing public faith well, to do public faith well, is to ask good questions, or I would even say, ask better questions. Jesus was a great asker of questions. Right? Who, who, do you, who do the people say that I am, and who do you say that I am? Or when he's trying to be trapped, you know, he goes, well, who's, you know, whose image is on that coin? Jesus was a master at asking questions, because when you ask better questions, you get closer to the truth. And when it comes to public faith, a, a question that Christians can ask and answer is not just to ask, what do you believe? 
But how did you come to believe what you believe? Because that second question, it allows us to transcend this idea of our beliefs as sort of these abstract ideas that we hold in our head. So, it's, you know, what is the mental furniture? Please describe it to me. But it allows us to tell a story. And as human beings, we love stories, and, and the Christian story is the greatest story ever told, and it gets retold in every person who comes to place their trust in Jesus. And each time, that story has its own particular twist, but it shares some common beats. And so what we have this morning is what one modern commentator on this passage calls Moses' conversion story. This bizarre encounter with God at the burning bush, it changes his entire life, and it changes the entire course of human history. And though each conversion story is unique or awakening story, testimony story is unique, it each has its own flavor, and God works in 10,001 different ways, all of them do share some common elements, and we see some of those in our passage in Exodus this morning. So just a quick summary to get us up to speed on Moses when we meet him here. So he was born at a time when when Pharaoh and the Egyptians were anxious about the growth of the Hebrew population. For them, it was getting too large, so they engaged in some population control, ordering that the midwives kill all the male Hebrew children at birth. So Moses' mother hid him in a basket, placed him in the Nile, and Pharaoh's daughter pulled him out and raised him in Pharaoh's household. And when Moses grew up, uh, he he became aware that he was a Hebrew ethnically. And so one day he saw an Egyptian abusing his Hebrew brothers. And so later on, Moses killed that Egyptian and he hid the body. But he was found out. And so before he was killed, he, he, he could be killed or arrested. He ran away to Midian where he got married. He had a son. He left his old life far, far behind him, working for decades as a simple shepherd. And years and and years went by like this. And then one day Moses was out tending the flocks of his father-in-law when he noticed something strange. There was a bush that was burning. And we've got to understand that this is a hot, dry wilderness place. So a, a, a bush, a, a, a plant being on fire was not that strange of a thing. It happened all the time. Hardly worth more than a passing glance. But there was something different about this bush. It just kept on burning and burning and burning and burning, and it, and it wasn't consumed. So Moses decided to have a closer look, and then God spoke to him. So the first thing we learn about conversion, about telling a conversion story from Moses, is that it starts with our interruptibility. We notice something strange and we turn aside to look. And how many of us go through life, right, as if we have tunnel vision? We have this sense of how things are supposed to go, the course we're supposed to take. We we know kind of our destination, and we have this idea, you know, how we're going to get there. And and it's like we get stuck on autopilot. And for the most part, we're not going to come to faith in God, personally meaningful, you know, existentially meaningful faith in God, unless somehow we get interrupted. 
unless something comes into our lives, some kind of burning bush that we just can't account for. It doesn't fit into our existing paradigm of how the world's supposed to work or, or how our lives were supposed to go. And those are holy, sacred conversion moments. Now, oftentimes when we're talking about, you know, being interrupted in our lives, this comes in the form of failure. Failure in a job, failure of a business, failure of a relationship, some kind of personal, moral failure. Right? All of the sudden, this, this thing that was supposed to work or this person that you were supposed to be, right, it, it doesn't work out. It stops us in our track. All of a sudden, we've been interrupted. And that prepares us to see a burning bush. Uh, Moses' life, you know, was defined by this kind of initial interruption, his first failed attempt at being a liberator of his people from the oppression of the Egyptians. But we can also be interrupted by, by good things. We can be interrupted by a church or a ministry or a Christian person that you meet, and there's just something different about them. And you want to know what that is, and so it draws you in. When I was in college, uh, Aldrich hired a new youth director. His name was Brandon Schur. Some of you in this room know who Brandon is. And, uh, you know, I was just entering college at the University of Minnesota, an, an impressionable time in a young man's life. And Brandon and I would have lunch. When I think back on it, it seems like we would have lunch every week at the Chipotle on Washington Avenue over over in Stadium Village at the U. Maybe it was just once a month, but, but, but all I know is that I looked forward to these lunches so much because there was something about Brandon. We would have these great conversations about Christian faith and the church, and, and Brandon was this burning bush. He just drew me in. He had a different way of, of looking at things, of doing things. He had this incredible ability to reach out to people who were misfits, him and his wife, Jessica, just collected them. And so, you know, I think back, oh, Brandon collected all these other people who were misfits, but he collected me too. And so maybe that says something about who I was at that moment. And he was unashamed to have conversations about faith with folks, you know, that we're not your quintessential church people. And it wasn't weird or awkward like I felt it would be if it were me. He started this coffee house open mic thing in the church basement for high school kids, and scores of kids came to this thing. It was incredible, and he made these cool zines. I don't know if you know what a zine was. It's like this photocopied magazine that you would make. They were very popular in the 90s, I would say, 80s or 90s. Sort of, they were kind of punk rock, like you'd make a zine. As independent magazine, and, and he made these ones, him and his wife Jessica, she was an artist, they made these zines that were really artistic, and they had these interesting nuggets about, about faith that he'd pass out, and, and he conveyed this strong sense that Christianity was not supposed to be this private little club, insular club, but that God had a huge heart for the world outside the church walls, and so the church needed to get out there and be in the world, not, not, not of it, but in it. So conversion starts with an interruption, an interruption that leads us to an encounter with something that just doesn't fit within our current understanding of the world or of God for that matter. And Moses had been doing the same thing for decades, shepherding his father-in-law's sheep. 
But when he allowed himself to be interrupted, that's when God spoke to him. Notice in verse 4 when it says, When the Lord saw that Moses turned aside to see him, then God spoke to him. There can be no conversion, no awakening without interruption, without a disruption of life as normal, as many of us know all too well. So if you are in a season of your life where you feel like you've been interrupted, where things are not working out as you've planned, I know that that can be painful, but just let me encourage you and admonish you. If you are experiencing that, please be sure to look around and see if God is trying to show you something about himself through that experience. And I can think of a couple of people I know who are going through some really hard stuff right now, and I just want to grab them by the shoulders and shake them and say, stop, look for the bush. So as God's people, let us be interruptible, but let us also be interrupters. Let us be a church that people turn aside and notice. Let's be people that do life differently, that offer another way of living and being and relating to God and one another in the world, right? Having a different rhythm, a different set of goals, a different set of values, a different mission. We have a different mission. We have the greatest mission of any organization on earth to point people to Jesus Christ. And so we want to be a burning bush where, where people turn aside and they can't help but notice something strange is happening here. And I want to get a closer look. So conversion, it starts with, with interruption or interruptibility. And, and the second pattern that we see here is that it leads to an expanded understanding of who God is. So God speaking from a burning bush, is, it's weird, it's strange, just in and of itself. Never happens again in Scripture. But a really interesting question to ask is, why did God choose to reveal himself to Moses in that manner? What was it about appearing as a fire that didn't consume a bush that was befitting for, for, for God to show Moses just what kind of God he is? And it's not a trivial question because actually when we understand this question, why appearing as a, a fire that didn't consume a bush, when we can make sense of that, we can make sense of some of the other elements in the rest of this story. And the reason it's befitting is this, is that normally a, a fire is dependent upon the bush for its fuel. No bush, no fire. But here, the fire isn't. It isn't dependent upon anything. It just is. It just burns. So what does it mean to see a fire that isn't dependent upon the bush? It means that, that Moses is dealing with something that has power and existence in itself. And this is really cool because this helps us make sense of the element of this, this passage that has fascinated those who've studied it for thousands of years. And that is the meaning, the revelation of God's name. God says to Moses, I've seen my people suffering, I've heard their cries, and so I'm going to come down and I am going to send you to those people and I'm going to draw them out to this, this land flowing with milk and honey. I'm going to liberate them from their captivity. 
And when Moses hears this, he objects, saying, who am I to do this? And God says, don't worry, I'll be with you. And then Moses says, well, if I go there and I tell them the God of our ancestors sent me, and they ask me, well, what's this God's name? What do I tell them? And then comes, you know, Exodus 3, 14. And this is, you know, one of the most crucial verses in Scripture. And so God says, well, tell them I am who I am. Tell them I am sent me. So God's name is I am. And people ever since have been asking, well, what kind of name is that? What does that name even mean? Now, I'm not going to get too deep in the weeds at all on this, but, but the name uh, that God gives come from, comes from the Hebrew verb for to be. And this name became, over the centuries, so sacred to the Jewish people that, that it wasn't spoken, but the best that scholars have reconstructed it is that the name that God gave here is Yahweh. And Yahweh means I am. I exist. So Moses is to tell the people when they ask him, being sent me. Existence sent me. The one who created and and holds everything together sent me. And when we understand this saying in context, we'll understand how, how revolutionary an idea of who God is this is and came to be. An absolute watershed moment in human religious history. See, in Moses' world, every nation had their gods, sometimes every tribe or every family, and it was a world, it was, it was alive with deities, and especially Egypt. You know, if we've gone to school, we know the whole Egyptian pantheon, Ra, Horus, Isis, you know, the list goes on and on and on. And so the gods of various peoples, they were always in competition, one with another. It's not that you disbelieve in someone else's gods. It's just that your gods you hoped would be stronger and more powerful and be able to protect you from their gods. But here is Moses' God saying, I am. Meaning there is no competition. There is no divine reality outside of me. This is a God that can't be measured against other gods, doesn't compete with other gods, can't be compared to other gods because this God is categorically different. In the words of the theologians, this God is wholly other, completely and totally different and distinct from his creation and any other of the the other material or spiritual creatures that inhabit it. And Moses was the first person to learn about God in this way. And it changed the course of human and religious history. And so when we're we're truly converted, we stop settling for the lesser gods of our own invention. And we stand in awe of the God who is I am. The same God who showed himself to us in Jesus, who seven times in the Gospel of John says, I am. I am the vine. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am and the resurrection and the life. And so this God who is incomparable to any other of the other gods that were on offer in that world, that God who is holy other is also holy, the holy other, H-O-L-Y. And here we see something that's absolutely central to, to any conversion experience, a growing understanding of the holiness of God. 
And the incredible thing about God's holiness, God's complete otherness, his total distinction from anything in creation, his categorical difference and set-apartness, is that it's the one thing about God that if we were inventing our own God or just projecting a God out into the universe, we would not invent it. We wouldn't include it in a list of God's attributes. You know, if we were inventing a God for ourselves, most of the attributes that we give to the biblical God, we would include in that list. You know, if God is just a projection of our best idea of humanity onto the universe, you know, we'd say we want this God to be powerful so he can do stuff for us. And we want this God to be just so that he can make stuff right that's wrong in the world. We want this God to be merciful because we don't want him to make us right without sort of giving us a pass. And we'd want this God to know everything that was going on and be present everywhere so he could help us. But we never invent a holy God, at least not one, a holiness as we see it in Scripture. Because whenever God's holiness shows up in Scripture, it is dangerous for human beings. Whenever human beings encounter God's holiness, God in his sheer godness, the encounter is one that can absolutely consume and destroy them. Old Testament scholar Alec uh, Motir says in his commentary on this passage, holiness endangers the sinner because the holiness of the Lord is not a passive attribute but an active force, embracing all that conforms to it and destroying all that offends. There haven't been too many contemporary attempts to portray what the holiness of God means, not in, in, in literature or in cinema, but there is one famous example from Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? And when the Nazis encounter the holiness of God at the Ark of the Covenant, their faces melt. I think Steven Spielberg actually did a really good job portraying what it is about the holiness of God. And that's why when we read in Exodus, there's, you know, this part we're reading this narrative about God. Wow, he's doing all these amazing signs in Egypt. And then he leads these people through the Red Sea. And it's all exciting. And we're going to go on this journey. And then it stops for like several chapters. And we get a description of building a tabernacle, this portable tent and shrine that can be moved around. You go, well, why is there so much detail and attention? I don't care, you know, how many cubits long uh, this thing is supposed to be and what is supposed to be on the end of the ephod of the high priest. I don't even know what an ephod is. But the reason there's so much detail, and this is so important, is because the tabernacle was designed to allow people to get as close as they could to God without getting too close so that they would get destroyed. And this whole concept of holiness, it's, it's difficult for us to grasp, but it's something like this. An awareness of God's holiness, it's, it's this total sense of awe and grandeur at our utter smallness and insignificance in the face of it, our unworthiness to be in its very presence. It's like if you've ever been to the Grand Canyon and, and you've stood there on the edge, it's, it's this huge, beautiful, it's, it's an overpowering thing to see. And you want to get as close as you can, but you're also scared. So you want to stay far away. It draws you in and repels you at the same time. I, I think the one example that I think of in Minnesota that gives me the same experience is if you go to Palisade Head on the North Shore. Those cliffs, right? And, and, and you get out there and they're so beautiful. There's almost this magnetic draw to go close as you can to the edge and look down at the water and the rocks below. 
But at the same time, you're terrified that you're just going to fall over and die. It's like this thing wants to draw you in and, and, and have you see its beauty, but it can kill you at the same time. Magnetic and repulsion at the same time. Fear of something so beautiful. That's the best that I can think of to explain holiness. It's wonderful and it's terrifying at the same time. In the presence of its power, you feel your weakness. In the presence of its beauty, you feel your ugliness. In the presence of its light, you feel your darkness. In the presence of holiness, you feel your unholiness. And in the presence of God, all of our self-justification, all the ways we've built ourselves up, it all comes crashing to the ground. And we're like Moses when God tells him he encounters this God, and then this God tells him, it would go to Egypt. He says, well, who am I? I'm a nobody. And a true appreciation of God's holiness comes when we understand not that just God is the great I am, but that we are the I am nots. Right? Nothing in our hands we bring, but simply to the cross we cling. And it leads to this last point about conversion. So it starts with an interruption. It leads to this expanded understanding of who God is. And the last thing it leads to is in a surprising encounter with God's grace. And so the bush is burning and it's not consumed. But the question is, why wasn't Moses? After all, he's having this close encounter with the holy God, the very ground of being. In the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, it says that God is a consuming fire. And there's other places in, Exod- in the Exodus story where, where the fire of God consumes people. And at the end of Exodus, Moses asks God, well, let me see you fully. And God says, no, you can't do that. It would destroy you, so I'll let you see my back. So what is it at this moment that keeps Moses safe? And the answer is unexpected grace. Unexpected grace that comes from an unexpected place that's so easy to miss. In verse 2 it says, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And then throughout the passage, the angel of the Lord is never mentioned again. It's just what God said, and God said, and the Lord said, and God saw, etc. So who's speaking to Moses here? Is it the angel of the Lord, or is it the Lord himself? And the angel of the Lord is a strange figure that pops up periodically in the Old Testament, a figure that is distinct from God, yet is treated as if when he speaks and acts, it's God himself speaking and acting. This person is God and not God at the same time. Alec Matir writes on the angel of the Lord, he is not a created angel, He is the Lord himself in manifestation, identical with the Lord, although also different. He is the mode of deity whereby the holy God can keep company with sinners. And he continues, there is only one other in the Bible who is both identical with and yet distinct from the Lord. One who, without abandoning the full essence and prerogatives of the deity or diminishing the divine holiness, is able to accommodate himself to the company of sinners and who while affirming the wrath of God is yet a supreme display of his mercy. Revelations of the unique angel can be appreciated only when understood as a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. And unless we think this is, you know, a bit of a stretch, Jesus in John 8 says, before Abraham, when he's answering some challenges to his authority, he says, before Abraham was I 
am. In other words, Jesus is the one speaking to Moses at the burning bush. He's the person whose life blazed with the power of divine holiness, yet he was not consumed. And he's the one who sent the Holy Spirit like fire upon the church. A fire which burns in the church and in Christians, but doesn't consume us. And in some ways, to be converted is, is to become a burning bush. It's to burn with the fire of God's holiness and God's love and to not be consumed. It is to have, in the words of John Calvin, a heart aflame in the hands of God. A flame but never consumed. And so may we burn brightly with that love and that holiness and may we be a holy interruption in the world pointing people to the God who met Moses at the burning bush and the angel of the Lord and who meets us still in the person of Jesus Christ God with us, just as the Lord promised Moses when he told him to go to Egypt. I will be with you. Always. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please pray with me.